You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 248, Preventing and Addressing Child Trafficking, Sex and Labor. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, today we have a guest with us that's going to help us on this really important topic and helping us to understand more about addressing child trafficking. I'm so glad for us to be able to welcome Melissa Gomez to the show today. She has contributed 20 years of service to the anti-trafficking movement. Melissa is dedicated to the advancement and integration of diverse voices to pioneer systemic change and co-create pathways of empowerment. She's currently the acting director of the Preventing and Addressing Child Trafficking Project for the Child and Family Policy Institute of California, in conjunction with the California Department of Social Services, facilitating a statewide model of cross-coordination to strengthen child trafficking programs within child welfare agencies in California. The project serves to improve outcomes and services to children and youth who are impacted by sex and or labor trafficking. Melissa resides in Marina on the central coast of California and is the proud mother of two amazing and creative boys. Melissa, we're so glad to welcome you to the show. Well, thank you so much. I am so excited to be here and to talk about this important issue. And uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Melissa, you and I have known each other for several years. And so I kind of like our listeners to get a thumbnail sketch of the 20 years in your bio um, and why you are so passionate about what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Sandy, I actually started this work as was just mentioned over 20 years ago. I originally was, you know, doing some work overseas in Mexico with a nonprofit youth with a mission where I was a translator with the project there and had heard an international speaker come in to talk about sex trafficking in India. And I think that was my first kind of exposure with the issue as a, you know, as a college student and as a young person, I really captured my heart. I wanted to get involved um, and wanted to find out more and make it make a difference in this work. And so I ended up getting involved with Youth with a Mission and traveled internationally. You know, I spent uh, some time in the Philippines where I initially encountered many young people that had been trafficked and had experienced sexual exploitation. And it was really their stories that kind of geared me towards this work. And then eventually I spent time in San Francisco for two years in the Tenderloin District where we uh, led outreach work at that time it was just when the Trafficking Prevention Act had passed. And so we still didn't even have language to really talk about what this looked like, right? And I remember having 
conversations and stories um, with individuals that were experiencing sex trafficking at that time about their encounters with law enforcement, how they had been sexually assaulted and how they weren't able to come forward and talk about their stories because they were afraid of being arrested. So then later on, I ended up uh, moving to Amsterdam, the Netherlands, where I worked for five years and uh, lived in the red light district right across the street from the oldest church in the city. It was called the Oudekerk. And surrounding the Oudekerk are windows where individuals are, are, are working every day and being sold and commodified on a daily basis. Amsterdam's known for you know sex tourism. And um, so through that experience, I really had the opportunity again to kind of engage and to learn from the stories of the survivors that I encountered. Wow. So now you find yourself as the acting director of this statewide initiative. And this is so significant because when I think about the opportunity here, I looked it up because in my old notes, I had California as the seventh largest economy in the world. But this week, we are number five. Yeah. And when you're thinking about exploitation of children in not only sex trafficking, but also labor trafficking, this gives us an opportunity to make change that's transferable beyond our borders because the business world, and if you listen to our last episode with Ben Skinner, you know that the power of the corporate world is global. It's not limited by geography. So let's talk about what is PACT. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So PACT, Preventing and Addressing Child Trafficking, is a project that was established back in 2014. And it came out of the Preventing Sex Trafficking and Strengthening Families Act of 2014, when the federal government really said, we need to begin to address some of these issues from a systems level, child welfare perspective in states, right? And at the same time, California legislation passed Senate Bill 855, which caused the state of California to develop this program called the Commercially Sexually Exploited Children Opt-in Program. You know, prior to this, child welfare really wasn't taking a lead on this issue. And oftentimes children, unfortunately, were criminalized. And, you know, we even use, used to use the term child prostitute, right, which is, is a term now that we understand to be incredibly problematic because a child can never be a prostitute. And so during that time, the state of California there's this it, funding comes down to the state, but every county has the ability to really leverage that funding and to take the guidance from the state and to develop their own protocols and their own procedures around what that looks like. And so PACT was developed at that same time that we suddenly saw child welfare taking this new leadership role around serving children and youth that were experiencing sexual exploitation. Um, and so some of the work that we did particularly was about building peer relationships with county coordinators in each of the counties that participated in the PACT project. So we have leadership cohorts in now four different regions, 46 counties are now participating in this. And what we found is that oftentimes within child welfare, there is a siloing this happens, that happens. There is 
this sense of feeling alone in the work that they're doing and the youth that they are encountering and the youth that they are providing services and supports to. And so they don't have the opportunity to really connect with one another and to grow and to learn together. So PACT became a collaborative platform to really inspire and to challenge those leaders in each of the counties to coordinate with one another and to share resources and leverage the supports that they had. We also did a lot of work around establishing initial strategies and teaming um, down coming down from the state there was a requirement that counties needed to establish MOUs with partners like law enforcement um, with the county office of education with other folks that would really come to the table and recognize that when we are looking at human trafficking we have to partner across sectors and we have to work together to you know solve this issue and so that collaborative platform has really inspired a lot of um, change across the state and been able to really break down these silos and build relationships with one another. And so I, you know, when I came into the project about two years ago, one of the things that I was specifically asked to kind of address was translating the work that had been done around CSAC to then how do we actually address this in other sectors? How do we serve and support youth that have experienced trafficking in other industries? And so that's kind of at the point that I came, I came into the project and we began to do more work, particularly around labor trafficking. So I've been talking about labor trafficking for a very long time. Our very first case in Orange County was a child labor trafficking victim. Many of you have listened to the podcast interview with Shima Hall, who was trafficked here as a child maid from Egypt and worked 24-7, slept in the garage in a gated Irvine community. And we didn't really know what to do. But now we understand. And thanks to your office, we actually have a mini desk guide to help us identify the types of child labor trafficking present right here in California. And so I want to talk about some definitions. First of all, is child labor legal? Yes. So, you know, when we talk about child labor trafficking, it is really important to talk about it in terms of the spectrum of child labor, right? And first of all, also, we need to address that there's these myths that many of us hold around what labor trafficking looks like in the United States. When we do trainings throughout the state, we're constantly having to remind people that this isn't something that just happens in other countries. This is something that's happening in the United States. And it might look a little different. And oftentimes it's very invisible to those of us that are living here in California. But there is legal child labor, right? That's defined by federal and state employment law. And typically you're going to see youth that are 14 to 16 years of age that have a work permit that are working, you know, and being able to bring in money for their families that are being able to learn some really incredible, you know, skills for their future employment. I started working at the age of 14 and had some great experience in a restaurant. And I think that's important for us to remember, you know, when we're talking about commercial sexual exploitation, there's never a legal form of commercial sexual exploitation of a child that's under the age of 18, right? But then we also have child labor 
that is not legal. And that's where minors are working under, they're under the legal working age, they're engaging in illegal work or work that's harmful to their health, to their development, uh, to their education. And you can, you know, oftentimes see this, for instance, in agriculture, children that might be working in the field, and they are being exposed to harmful pesticides or chemicals, or they are in construction and having to carry these heavy loads that are not appropriate for their age development or their uh, that actually has this physical impact on their bodies. Or as you mentioned, uh, domestic servitude, right? One of the very first cases in Fresno County and prior to my work with PACT, I worked for many years providing comprehensive services to survivors of both sex and labor trafficking in six counties in the Central Valley. And one of the first survivors that we also identified in the Central Valley was a survivor of domestic servitude that was brought to the U.S. at the age of nine, and it was under a false adoption. And she spent also, as you were mentioning in the other case, she was working 24-7 and she was actually able to attend school, but she didn't have that normal childhood. When she came home from school, she was required to watch other children. She worked in the traffickers business. I think it was over 12 years that she was involved in, in this work. And then um, we also have this, this spectrum of labor exploitation, right? And so that's working legally, but these children and youth are denied basic legal rights. So they, they might have a worker's permit. They might be you know working in a restaurant, but they're not getting fair compensation. They're not getting breaks. They're not getting overtime, but they have that ability to leave the work if they want to, right? They might not leave because maybe they feel like, this is the only way they're making money, but they can leave. And it really crosses into labor trafficking where there is this space of force, of fraud, or coercion. And all of us who really have that grounding and what commercial sexual exploitation looks like, we probably know what some of those elements might be. Um, traffickers are going to, you know, create that psychological coercion, that sense that they are not able to leave this work without experiencing threats to a loved one or to someone that they care about. Maybe they're experiencing physical abuse. And actually, the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking, you know, has data that shows in all of their cases, one out of three female survivors of labor trafficking experience sexual abuse as a part of the coercion within their labor trafficking experience. And so there really oftentimes is this overlap with other, other crimes as well and other forms of abuse that is happening to that child to keep them in that situation. I think it's really important for us to distinguish the elements of the crime that have to be investigated and proven in the process when it is labor trafficking, like you already pointed out, if it's sex trafficking of a minor, we just eliminate needing to investigate those elements, but we still need to understand them in order Absolutely. to provide the best care in a victim-centered approach. I remember one child victim, teenager, and when she was interviewed, the coercion in her experience was the threat of deportation of her mm -hmm. uncle. And this in the immigrant community, you can look and say, well, this child is safe. She has citizenship. She's going to school. But you have to look at the, the whole family and, and the systems around that. In your desktop report, 
you actually have, and I really want any teacher, any child social worker, any youth worker, any student to download this because it's such a good glimpse of what's happening here in California. But as we wanted to establish at the beginning, you can use this at a much broader level. So on page five, we actually see numbers. Numbers are not real people. We know that, but they Mm -hmm. do show us that we are identifying child victims of labor trafficking. Tell us about those numbers. You, how did you get them? So I think you might be referring from the data that we pulled from the National Human Trafficking Hotline. I just want to confirm that. Yes, yes. Okay. So as you mentioned, I think it's really important that when we're looking at numbers, we recognize the limitations, right? And also we recognize that labor trafficking in particular is an issue that really is underreported and, you know, really misunderstood, I think, by the general population. Most people have an understanding at this point of what sex trafficking looks like. But if you look at campaigns, if you look at images in the media, if you look at the stories, even the the media reports that are coming out, oftentimes they won't actually mention forced labor or labor trafficking. They'll talk about maybe the experience, but they won't actually label it that way. So the public awareness and even of victims themselves in terms of reporting this is still very low. So I just want to say that in terms of kind of couching this data and that understanding. But the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which really is one of our you know largest sources of data at this point for understanding what this looks like, has a data set from 2007 to 2019. And that includes 17,271 minor victims and survivors that were identified through the hotline. So folks that called in and actually self-disclosed their experience. And we see that 80, about 80% of those cases were sex trafficking and 9.8, almost 10% were labor trafficking. And then around 5% were both. And then there was about 5% where they just weren't able to identify whether or not it was it was sex or labor trafficking. But some of the other kind of key components that you can pull out of that data set is that nearly about 38% of those cases of child survivors specifically were cases where the individual was trafficked by a family member or a foster family. And so I think that that piece of data is incredibly important for us to recognize the vulnerabilities of our foster youth and also just the vulnerabilities of a child that's being trafficked by someone that they know and have that close relationship with an adult that's supposed to care and love for them, you know, love them that ends up, you know, abusing them, unfortunately. We also see a little bit of a difference, a big difference in terms of gender for sex trafficking versus labor trafficking. So we see in labor trafficking that nearly 50% of the cases are males. And that is much higher than the small percentage of cases that were being that are being reported to the national hotline of male survivors of sex trafficking. Although we know that we need to do a better job of identifying male survivors of sex trafficking, right? That's right. <laughs> So let me ask you about specific industries Mm -hmm. where we see child labor in a more prevalent 
just yes. labor trafficking. So the top three industries, the national hotline has reported that we see labor trafficking with children is in peddling and begging. So you're going to see kids, you know, selling candy bars, right? Or begging on the street or busking, playing music, that sort of thing. You're going to see domestic work and then traveling sales crews actually is up there too. And that's where you see youth that are traveling oftentimes around the country selling either cleaning supplies, door-to-door, selling magazines, those sorts of things. And we've actually had a, a few cases like that in the Central Valley when I did did direct work with, with survivors of traveling sales crews. But really, I think what's important to highlight is labor trafficking is contextualized to the vulnerabilities of the specific economies and states and counties and communities, right? So if you're living in a particularly rural community, you're going to see more cases in agriculture. If you're living in a, in a community where there's a high tourist industry, you're going to see more cases in, you know, hospitality. The other thing is that the hotline also identified um, several industries where there was a strong crossover between between sex and labor trafficking. And those three industries where you saw folks at bars or clubs where they were both working maybe in the sex industry or it being exploited for commercial sex, but also working maybe in the bar. And then in the illicit massage industry, health and beauty. And then the third area where we see a strong area of crossover, which kind of leads into some other data, I think, I think, Sandy, that you wanted to mention is this area of forced criminality or children that are being um, forced and coerced to participate in illegal activities on behalf of their trafficker. Wow. Okay. So I want to help people learn how to identify child victims because it, it is more challenging because of proving force, fraud, or coercion. So let's look at some of the red flags, and then let's use the HTIAM-14. Everybody write that down. It, <laughs> we, we have to start somewhere, and we need to have screening tools. So teachers, social workers, this is a good place to begin to develop the perspective, the filter, so that you can identify child labor victims. So tell us about what we're looking for. Yeah. So some of the red flags are going to be, you know, someone that's controlling, you know, the child's money, their communication. As you mentioned, someone that has that lack of status through immigration, that, that's a really, you know, high vulnerability, although we see this with both domestic youth and U.S. citizen youth. And so if they're passport documentations being controlled. And that can look a little different for younger children because it would make sense, obviously, for an adult to have, you know, control of some of that documentation, but particularly if it's, a, it's an older youth, you're going to see that oftentimes control of movement and where that youth is not, maybe they're able to go to church or they're able to go to school, but they're not able to freely move and they always have to come back. They, they're monitored by that trafficker. In a lot of cases with child labor trafficking, particularly with younger kids, oftentimes there's this unclear caregiver relationship. So as I mentioned in the case where there was a faux adoption, um, this falsified adoption case, but oftentimes you might see like an older child an older youth dropping off a child at school. And there's kind of this confusion around who is
is actually, you know, the parent or the caregiver. In many cases of labor trafficking, you see what's called debt bondage. So this like increasing debt. So for instance, with traveling sales crews, you see that the individual has to pay off this debt. So they're expected to work. They're expected to meet this quota. They're given this false promise of, you know, you're going to make all this money. You're going to be able to, you know, travel the U.S. and be able to meet friends and have this community of people that you're working with. And then what ends up happening is they they don't meet their quota and they have to pay for their travel and they have to pay for their hotel stay that their trafficker forces them to stay at this specific place. And that debt just starts increasing and they feel this absolute need and obligation to have to pay off this debt. So um, that can be a big sign. Missing school and truancy. So, you know, a child may be attending school, but they may be showing up at school late. They may be exhausted at school. And when you ask them questions about why they're so tired, they, they had to work or they had to do something um, for their family. There's oftentimes this fear. And, you know, it's very difficult sometimes to identify this, but we do see this scripted communication. So in the one case I mentioned before, social services had multiple encounters with this young person that was being trafficked for many, many years and ended up not being identified till she was an adult because there was scripted communication happening and she was constantly being groomed. You're going to see signs of abuse, whether that's physical, sexual, emotional, spiritual, and oftentimes physical impacts like malnourishment, fatigue, potentially workplace injuries, right? You oftentimes will see people working and living in the same place. And there may be restricted living spaces, you know, so like I think you mentioned the gated community, right? There could be security cameras, tinted windows, bars, that sort of thing. But that's not always the case. And so it's important that we recognize sometimes chains are psychological, not just physical. So those are some of the signs. And then In terms of the human trafficking interview and assessment measure, I think it's really important to have open-ended conversations with youth. This particular assessment was actually designed for a research study that was done in partnership with Covenant House, and that is a national um, group that has shelters all over the United States. And so it actually drew on interviews with almost a thousand homeless youth across 13 cities. And so the assessment was developed to really identify labor trafficking and sex trafficking within these youth. And some of the questions that they ask, you know, really hit on that forced fraud and coercion. So have you ever worked in a place that made you feel scared or unsafe to be able to talk to a youth about their experience? Have you ever been tricked or forced into doing any kind of work that you didn't want to do? Have you ever worked for someone who didn't let you contact your friends or your family or your outside world, even when you weren't working? So to get at some of these these pieces that look at that that force, fraud, and coercion. And those are just a couple examples, but please check it out. Um, As Sandy mentioned, there really are not a lot of comprehensive screening tools that are validated that have been developed yet to address labor trafficking. And so I do think, like you said, we have to start somewhere and um, there's still a lot more work to be done. So I would encourage teachers, social workers, healthcare providers to take a look at this screening tool, not necessarily because you're going to formally do screening, but as a guide for conversations. And in the past, we've talked about communicating with adolescents and their brain morphology, developmental stages. And so sometimes one of the limitations of a screening tool like this is it's maybe so direct that a student won't be forthcoming. 
and learning to use a little different language that might neutralize and anonymize the information to carry on that dialogue. And because you're not doing a formal screening, you can begin to develop that relational communication by saying, do you know someone who's been working in a place where they don't feel safe? And that gives a little more room for conversation and creating a way forward for a student to self-disclose. We're beginning to see how we can use a lot of what we learned in communicating with commercially sexually exploited children in this same arena. And to that, I want to, as we wind up here, talk about the element of trauma. There is some kind of discrimination between in our brains that somehow the child who is sexually exploited is more traumatized than the child who is labor exploited. Can you speak to that, Melissa, for a minute? Yeah. And I think, you know, this has been something that has just irked me like over the years in in this movement, because I have spoken to so many survivors of labor trafficking whose experience was incredibly traumatic. And as I've mentioned, oftentimes this intersects with really severe forms of sexual abuse, physical abuse, beatings that the child experienced, often at the hand of someone that really was supposed to love and protect them. And unfortunately, we do. We have this sensationalized, I think, view where I have, a, I have actually a really good friend and colleague and male survivor of sex traffic, trafficking that he calls this trauma porn, you know, that we have this need in our society to hear like the most horrific pieces of a survivor's experience and really commodify their story. And unfortunately, you know, with labor trafficking, First of all, we don't have as many stories or examples, right, of ethical stories that we've heard of folks that have experienced this. But also, we really have minimized their experience over the years. And as I mentioned before, we oftentimes don't see in campaigns or in the media or in the news stories that talk about what it looks like to have someone really, you know, Again, working around the clock, absolute exhaustion at times, having their childhood stripped from them, and that trauma that impacts them over time. Many of the survivors that I've worked with of labor trafficking have long-term health impacts from the experience of their trafficking. And um, I work with, actually, I have the privilege of working with a team of survivor consultants across the state that have both experienced sex and labor trafficking, they talk very freely about how similar their experiences of trauma are. And while they're, you know, the industry that they worked in is is different, and some of the things that the services that they received may have been different in their journeys, the trauma that they experienced was very similar. So it's important for us to recognize that. So as we move forward here in California, we have this growing collaborative through PACT. We're going to be able to gather more data specific to California and our experiences and how it's processed in in our social services, in our schools, in our healthcare system to identify kids. I want people listening to go back and hear 
interviews we've done with child labor trafficking victims like Shima Hall, we'll put a link in the show notes, and Bella Hunike, who was trafficked from Togo when she was nine years old. And their description of the trauma will help us develop our empathy muscles for labor trafficking victims as well. Melissa, it has been so fun to catch up with you again. I'm excited about the future of growing awareness and a collaborative to fight child labor trafficking right here. Thank you, Sandy, so much. I appreciate uh, you having taking the time to have me today. Thank you both. Melissa, thank you so much for your work and your partnership. And we are inviting everyone listening to take the first step if you haven't already. Please hop online and download a copy of Sandy's book, The Five Things You Must Know, A Quick Start Guide to Ending Human Trafficking. It's a guide that will teach you the five critical things that Sandy, in her work here at the Global Center for Women and Justice, has identified that you should know before you join the fight against human trafficking. You can get access by going over to endinghumantrafficking.org. That's also the very best place to go for all the links and resources that we mentioned in today's conversation. It's also a source of details on the Anti-Human Trafficking Certificate Program here at Vanguard University. If you would like to discover more about the program, we invite you to go over to endinghumantrafficking.org. All the details are listed there. We will be back for our next conversation here on the show in two weeks. Sandy, as always, a pleasure. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Dave. See you all in two weeks.